Okay, I'm, I'm working my way through the book of James with you. We're in James chapter 5. Too much to talk about last week. And so we div- I divided this into two, two weeks to cover this material in James 5, 13 to 20. If you want to you see the text over my head there. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if any One among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So this section is obviously about prayer. James uses the word pray or prayer seven times in this passage. And James himself was a man of prayer. He had a nickname Old camel knees because of the calluses on his knees for spending so much time on them in prayer. Prayer has tremendous power. Prayer is where the action is spiritually. There's a great privilege in praying and also responsibility. And I can imagine that no one here in this building today is completely satisfied with your prayer life. You want it to grow, be deeper, have a closer connection with God. I hope you do. I do. Last week, we looked at prayer for physical healing. Today, we're going to look at prayer for emotional and spiritual healing. So when should I pray? When I'm hurting emotionally. We see that in verse 13. The word suffering there is catopathio, which means afflicted. Troubled, in distress, under tension. Certainly you've experienced that in your life. Internal distress caused by external circumstances. Spiritual problems are largely caused by what we do, while emotional problems are largely caused by what's been done to us. That thing could have happened to us a long time ago, but we've gotten stuck emotionally and our memory keeps it fresh. Emotional pain can lead to spiritual choices in order to cope, which then becomes a spiritual problem for us, not just an emotional problem, which can lead to a physical problem. You see how interconnected we are, the spirit Our emotions, our mind, our bodies are all very interconnected and interrelated. So what should I do when I have emotional pain? The Bible says here I should pray. When I pray, prayer changes my focus from my problem to God. 
Let me read an interesting text from the Old Testament. Joshua 5, 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Historical situation, the ex-Jewish slaves have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They're about ready to enter the promised land, but they have a lot of shame from their past bondage. Guilt is when you feel bad for what you've done. Shame is when you feel bad for who you are. They had the moral failings of their parents who all died out in the wilderness, too. They, they were a beaten down people. Emotionally, they just felt like they, they were still in chains. And the verse before this, 5-8, they were circumcised. This painful procedure identified them as God's chosen people. Knowing they were God's chosen people strengthened them for the battles that they would face ahead. God rolled away their reproach. We must pray for Jesus to heal our emotional wounds. And he, as he does that, there's usually a piece of this that we have to do. And often that is we must forgive others. Forgive the one who hurt us. We let them off the hook. We won't punish them. We release them from the debt they legitimately owe us. Also remembering that they're not off God's hook. God will deal with him as he sees fit. In your sermon notes, if you're filling uh, in the blanks today, on the back side of that is a little thing on steps to forgiveness that I've kind of cobbled together from different resources in, in my own dealings. So you could take a look at that, especially if this is something that you need to work on today. Who do you need to forgive? Next, James says, is anyone cheerful or happy? Let him sing praises. Praising makes us happier. Praising often led to miraculous deliverances in the Bible. For instance, Second Chronicles chapter 20, an amazing story of Israel surrounded by their enemies and the king of Israel cried out to God, God, help us. We're going to be destroyed by these enemies. And a prophet was given a word by God to go and tell the king, send the choir out in front of the army. How would you like to be in that choir? So the choir goes out ahead of the army, begins to praise the Lord. And God sends confusion in the ranks of these enemy soldiers who fight one another, destroy each other. And Israel was delivered by God's mighty hand. They praised and deliverance came. In the New Testament, in Acts 16, is a pretty cool story of Paul and Silas who had been sharing the gospel. But they were arrested, beaten, in chains and shackles in their prison cell. And it says around midnight, they begin to praise God. Now, if I had been beaten with rods and was chained to the walls of the prison, I don't know if I'd feel like praising God. But they did. And it says, then a mighty earthquake tore down the walls of the prison and set them free. Praise and prayer are two great weapons in the Christian life. God's prescription, as it were, for emotional wellness. So I encourage you to come here on Sunday mornings ready to praise God. God can break the shackles in your life, set you, the prisoner, free. And I think worship has an emotional element to it. It's not just 
intellectual. It produces joy in our lives. Our lives can be very stressful. Through praise and worship, you can experience release. And then when you're not here praising the Lord together, corporately, in your home, I encourage you to put on some good Christian music, which, if anointed, can also minister and set you free. So pray when you're troubled. Praise when you're happy. When else should I pray? When I'm sick. And we looked at that last week. But I have a testimony that I want to tell you this morning. Yesterday, I don't know what I did, but my elbow was hurting me so badly that I couldn't move it at all without really severe pain. It's like a really bad case of tennis elbow. So, of course, I put the Bengay on it and a little elbow wrap and just prayed. And Kathy prayed. And I woke up this morning and, look, you know, it's just so much better. So you've all experienced that, right? Something that you think, is this going to become a chronic issue in my body? And God heals it. God is still in the healing business. So we looked at God healing us by prayer in verses 14 and 15 last week. But we can also pray when we're hurting spiritually. We see that in verses 16 through 20. Spiritual sickness is closely related to physical sickness. Case in point, Mark chapter 2. The paralyzed man, whom his friends had him on a stretcher. They were going to bring him to Jesus, that Jesus might pray for their friend and he would be healed. But there was such a crowd outside the house where Jesus was ministering inside that they could not get their friend through the crowd. So they were very ingenious. They went up on the roof, dug a hole in the roof and lowered their friend down into the area inside the house where Jesus was. And he did indeed heal this paralyzed man. But he said something interesting. He said, son, your sins are forgiven you. So if I ignore and disobey God's commands, my body will let me know. Eventually, spiritual and sin issues can impact our sleep, digestion, and affect our whole body. It can lead to ulcers, heart trouble, skin disorders, headaches, allergies, asthma. Dr. Robert Cunningham of the Mayo Clinic said, Four out of five times, I'd find out what was wrong sooner if I asked the patient about his home life, job, and finances instead of his heart and digestive system. Often sickness of emotion is what's been done to us, whereas sickness of the spirit is caused by what we do. We choose to sin. We choose to violate God's clear word. So what's the cure? Confess your sins. Confess your sins. Sin alienates us from God. It separates us from God. But confession means to agree with God. God, you're right about my sin. I was wrong. Admit it. And ask God to help you. And because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, he is so gracious to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and help us. I read this strange story, and it just sounds kind of hard to believe. But here's the story. A man was angry at his cow, and he kicked it. And in kicking the cow, he became paralyzed from the waist down. And he became very bitter about this. 
He was bitter at God for not healing him. Bitter at his pastor and church family for not visiting him more. Bitter at the doctor for not doing more for him. Bitter at the insurance company for not giving him more money. And bitter at the cow. So would God heal him full of all that bitterness and resentment? Well, he didn't. So this man struggled with this issue for some time until finally he let go of his bitterness. He forgave those that he thought offended and hurt him. And eventually he did walk. I had a pastor friend in Canton tell me about a lady that attended his church that had a chronic, serious physical condition that never got better through doctoring, through prayer. And so he began to just explore a little bit more in her life history. And he found out that she was harboring unforgiveness. Apparently, her sister had slighted her years ago and she had never forgiven her sister for this. And as a result, had suffered spiritually, emotionally, physically. So the pastor said to her, you know, I can continue to pray for you in your physical condition, but I really don't think it's going to change until you confess this sin and get rid of this unforgiveness in your heart. She refused. And he told me later she died. Unforgiveness blocks God's work in your life. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. As I deal with the spiritual issues first in my life, then the emotional and physical issues in healing come right along. So confess your sin. To whom? To God, of course. But our text tells us to one another. Now, people have said this to me over the years. I've never told anyone this before. And confessing is very cathartic. You know, you, you just get this thing that had been burdening you off your chest and you feel a release and you can feel better. So it's very important to have a trusted friend that you can share these intimate things with. Now, one another applies to verses 19 and 20. I'm not going to cover that. I think that deserves a separate um, conversation about restoring the wayward brother. We'll look at that in a couple weeks. But in the New Testament times, the believers confessed to one another. In the Middle Ages, they confessed to a priest. Freud said, confess to a counselor. And Protestant Christians today confess only to God. And as a result, we have a lot of hang-ups. I think it can be scary to confess our sins to another human being because they can be very unreliable and untrustworthy. Reminds me of the story of the three ministers who were part of accountability group. And they said, let's confess our sins to each other. And they agreed to do that. The first pastor said, I'm an alcoholic. No one knows this. I've struggled with alcohol addiction my entire life. And the second one says, my sin is lust. I'm really struggling with that. It's a continual battle for me. The third minister was quiet. And so the other two asked him, don't you have a sin to confess? He said, you guys are really going to have to pray hard for me. My sin is gossip. So do I need to confess my sins to everyone? No, they're they're what I call layers of confession or concentric circles of confession. Confess as widely as the sin warrants and involves others. For instance, if it's a private sin, 
confess it to the Lord and your trusted confidant. If it's a personal sin between you and another person, go to them and confess your sin to them. And if it's a public sin, I may need to confess it more publicly again as the situation warrants. Now, who can pray? James tells us in verses 16 through 18, the prayers of a righteous person availeth much in the King James or are powerful. They have great power. The prayers of a righteous person. And he cites the example of Elijah, the man who faced down 850 prophets of Baal, who called down fire from heaven on such prophets, who, who caused a drought to last for three and a half years and then prayed for rain and it rained on the earth. That's Elijah. I'm not him. I can't do this. Why even bother praying? I'll never be that righteous. So we remember Elijah's highs. But we forget his lows, that he was fearful, depressed, even suicidal. He was mad at God. He was guilty, angry, lonely, and a worrier, just like us. So, Elijah teaches us that we don't have to be perfect to see answers to prayer. And when he prayed for rain... He sent a young boy ahead seven times back and forth. Hey, do you see any clouds coming yet? Do you see any clouds coming yet? Seven times this boy did that. That says to me, you've got to be persistent in prayer. Don't give up when your prayer isn't immediately answered. And how are we made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ, not our own works? It says in uh, Romans 3.26, it was to show his righteousness At the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's our justifier. He makes us righteous. I'm righteous in him by his blood. How can I pray effectively? From the book of James, we've already seen four aspects of praying effectively. Let's review what we've already kind of covered in James and, and wrap this up. Let's review. The first thing is to ask. First thing in praying effectively is to ask. James 4, 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. It almost sounds silly to talk about prayer and say, hey, the first thing you have to do is ask. Right? It seems so, like, it's obvious, isn't it? But the truth of the matter is we don't pray. We fuss and worry and try to solve the problem ourselves before we pray. We may pray before a meal. We may pray in the middle of a crisis. But God wants our prayers to him to be part of an ongoing, continual, deepening relationship with him. Where where prayer is just a part of our lives. It isn't just something we do right before bed or at mealtime. But continually throughout the day, our thoughts are going heavenly toward God, and we're talking to him about what's happening in our lives. If we don't pray, we won't see God move in the ways that he would like to move in our lives. Here's the second thing from James on prayer. Pray with the right motives. We saw that in James 4, 3. Okay, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Sometimes our prayers are very selfish. Make sure as you're praying about something, your reason for praying is pure 
It's biblical. And it's God's will as much as you can. Third thing from James on prayer. Live a clean life. Live a clean life. James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So a righteous life, a holy life. I confess my sin immediately when it comes to my mind. You know, I get right with God and I'm back in business. Number four, ask in faith. Ask in faith from James chapter one, verse six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So that means I expect answers when I pray. I'm getting rid of the doubt, knowing that God wants to reward me for asking and believing him. So how's your prayer life this morning? How you doing? Mine hasn't always been where I want it to be. As I told you last week, the prayer walking early morning has really helped my prayer life. And I desire to pray for you more. I want to see souls saved and revival break out in our church, community, country and world. I want our church to impact this community and be a miracle in this community that our church, if asked, what's the explanation for what God's doing among you can only be God, not any person. And I want to give the devil a black eye. So let, I want to close by reading a quote from Francis McNutt, and it's primarily on praying for physical healing. But I think this quote could apply to any area of ministry that you're a part of. I think he, he's wise in what he says here. It is necessary that the minister, and that could be any of us, right? Not just me. Be free of the need to prove anything. That he be free of any personal desire for achieving results. To be cast down when his prayers have failed to effect a cure means it is time to examine his motives to see how much of his own fear of failure is mixed into his ministry. I may think I am defending the honor of God by demanding faith, but perhaps what I am really defending is my own self-image as a minister of healing or as a Sunday school teacher or anything else. I must call to mind over and over again that the gift of healing is a manifestation of God's spirit working through me. It is not a thing I have in my possession, which I can turn on or off at will, but a transient grace, a passing movement of God's spirit working through me to help someone else. In most healings, three persons are involved. God, the sick person and the minister of healing. My part as the minister of healing is to pray the prayer of faith and then to move out of the way. In fact, the sick person is capable of asking for God's help himself without anyone else being with him at all. The key persons are God, who is love, and the sick person whose sickness elicits God's loving compassion. I am simply the human channel of God's love, and I should be humble about that. At times I am used. At times I am not used. 
I feel very uncomfortable when someone calls me a healer. The connotation is much like putting on a label of certification, a kind of rank, a something which one possesses permanently and over which he has control. But that is not true. Sometimes God uses my prayers and touch in order to heal at other times. He does not. Why this is, I do not know. What I do know is that this inability to control keeps me humble. It helps me realize where the healing power comes from. So the minister is simply to pray as best he can and above all to love the sick person who came to him. Lord, thank you for the wisdom of this man. Thank you even more so for the wisdom you gave James as he wrote this inspired text of scripture. And Father, we are human. We're mortal. We get sick in body, in our emotions, our soul, and in our spirit with sin. But Lord, your compassion and love is so great that you want to forgive and heal all aspects of our being today. I just pray, Lord, if there's anyone here sick in body, soul, or spirit, that they would look to you, the healer, and would experience healing today. You are great and mighty. No one is like you. We want you to receive all the glory and honor for any answered prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. And like always, the altar is open here at the end of the service. If during the singing time, you'd like to come forward for prayer. Be glad to anoint you with oil and pray for you. Let's stand.